Good evening. Uh, we just finished making a short broadcast in which we talked about the tassel. There are many other ways that God gave Israel a means of, of remembering him and remembering their relationship with him uh, and of remembering what the divine liturgy actually means and the prayer rope means. I want to speak about something else though this evening. We talked about the conflict sometimes between religion and faith because uh, religion can also create a kind of tribalism, a kind of nationalism that leads people to belong to it and focus on it to such a degree that the tribalism itself can sometimes outweigh the purpose for its existence and that we need to live by means of faith, not to re live by means of religion. Tonight I want to say something about the conflict between superstition and faith and how many people hinge their faith upon various phenomena and superstitions. All of you are familiar with people who will flock to um, uh, see a water tank where a rust spot seems to look like the head of the Virgin Mary. Ironically, a lot of Protestants who decry or uh, lament that we venerate the Virgin Mary will go to see this thinking that a miracle will occur. Uh, and now we have things within the Orthodox Church that occur periodically. And they're miraculous things. And of course, we have this very deep and profound veneration of the Theotokos, understanding that without a proper veneration of the Theotokos, we inevitably fall into a heresy about Jesus Christ. Because if she is not who we say she is, then prophecy has not been fulfilled and the Messiah had not come. Consequently, the proper veneration, the orthodox veneration of the Mother of God, of the Theotokos, is essentially a part of our confession of the incarnation of God, of, of Jesus Christ, and of our salvation. We have mer-streaming icons. There had not been in the church a tradition of weeping icons. There were mer-streaming icons. And we have a lot of superstitions that come from folk religion. And sometimes these superstitions and a preoccupation with various phenomena, which are not miraculous at all, but we want to think of them as miraculous because we have such a preoccupation with them, that we end up thinking far more about these phenomena and about these superstitions than we do about the clear gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes even Jesus Christ is put in the background and people are condemned for refusing to accept these superstitions or speaking against them. But sometimes it seems that we plant a jungle between us and Jesus Christ and somebody needs to come in with a machete and chop down the weeds and the bushes so that we can truly see Jesus Christ again. Uh, the dream of a unnamed pious older woman in the Tobolsk region who happens to come into church and fall asleep on the floor while she's waiting for the service to begin and has a dream will very often be used to outweigh a clear dogmatic teaching of St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, uh, or one of the great holy fathers. The This meaningless little story will trump the clear doctrinal statements of the Holy Fathers very often. And this is something that I want 
to deal with. And I realize it's going to be unpopular, but I'm rather used to that by now. Nevertheless, it needs to be said that we have got to be very cautious that our superstitions do not become a substitute for our faith, that our attraction and attachment to various phenomena do not become a substitute for our real struggle for the purification of the heart and to have heart knowledge of the Orthodox faith rather than just head knowledge of the Orthodox faith. I, this is a very uh, important and serious matter because we find throughout the Orthodox Christian world and in North America as well as in Eastern Europe that superstitions and phenomena dominate some people's entire spiritual lives. And maintaining these superstitions almost outweighs, and in many cases absolutely outweighs, approaching Holy Communion. That people who will take Holy Communion four times a year or even one time a year will not think so much about the great miracle of Holy Communion and what it actually means to us, but will take it sometimes as a superstitious amulet once a year, four times a year instead of taking it frequently as a source of life and as being the heavenly bread and as a type of the heavenly wedding banquet of Christ and his bride, the church. So I think I would like to ask some of you who are viewing this to ask specific questions about things that you think might be a superstition which are burdening the faith and even darkening it or overshadowing it or things that are being held to in place of. Now, the, the reason this is so important is because very often we're sidetracked from that real living faith in our Lord Jesus Christ because we hold a faith, but one that is laced with all kinds of superstitions and even all kinds of dark ideas and dark teachings, which are the very opposite of what we've been taught by the scripture, by the gospel, by the very words of Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Fathers. One can always have a superstition and rummage through some either apocryphal writings, that is, writings by unknown authors, but have been attributed to a father or a saint of the church. <coughs> or in some of the Patyricons, or even some reference in the Holy Fathers which we can twist into seeming to support our superstitions. This is how the teaching of the uh, rapture got started in Protestantism. When Mr. Darby had his dream about the rapture, he went rummaging through scripture trying to find some verse that might help substantiate it, and lo and behold, by misinterpreting a few verses, to fit his preconceived idea, not by arriving at his idea through the scripture, but by taking his idea and trying to verify it from scripture. He managed to interpret some verses to substantiate it. And we can do the same with almost any superstition, I suppose. But we need really to look seriously at these matters of superstitious teaching and uh, find out uh, how they're detracting us. Not only that, 
But how are they going to undermine the faith of the younger generation who will not accept these gross superstitions? And how will they feed into the hands of Protestant missionaries who go into Eastern Europe and say, oh my goodness, look at, there's nothing like this in the Holy Scripture. This can't be substantiated from the Word of God and so on and so forth. And can even say, well, it can't be actually substantiated from those Holy Fathers you read. And how many people will they tear away from the bosom of the church? So uh, if you have something in that regard, then uh, by all means, uh, right, and let's discuss it a little. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of things from, well, now we have walls and somebody's house bleeding and everybody thinks it's a miracle of God. I'm not sure what the whole story is behind that, but I'm sure that they don't have bleeding walls. And I'm sure if they did, it wouldn't be from God. Uh, to whether or not do we light a lamp in a window when somebody dies so the soul can find its way back to the house or in other orthodox areas cover the windows tightly and put out the light so that the soul can't find its way back and bother everybody in the house uh, these are both superstitions held very deeply within some orthodox regions in eastern Europe um, you know do we are we afraid of vampires still um, if uh, somebody, you know, in the areas where the uh, Gnostic toll house teaching is current, uh, particularly in Altenia, I believe, a young man will climb as high as... Good evening and welcome again to the Canadian Orthodox Monastery of All Saints of North America. Uh, we've been off the air for a while because uh, I've been away uh, on some lecture tours and visits. Uh, we were in um, Damascus, Syria for uh, a conference which was held at the uh, Islamic Institute of Damascus. Uh, I was there representing the Orthodox Peace Fellowship, primarily interested uh, from our point of view in the coming crisis about water and since there will be water shortages there will also be shortages of food. So this was the primary interest um, of, of the Orthodox Peace Fellowship and of course uh, the catastrophe that happened in Gaza uh, was of, of great interest to us. After that I was in Romania for a series of four other conferences and uh, so we'll try to resume our broadcasts. This evening though I'm going to first of all address uh, some questions. If you will recall those of you who have been following these broadcasts we talked a little bit about superstitions in the church and I'd ask people to write in and ask about some of the um, superstitions they'd heard and we get some rather strange ones. Um, someone asked, uh, it's, is it really forbidden for the priest to ever sit on part of his vestments uh, if he sits down on the altar while he's vested? Uh, I, I think that may have come from a Greek viewer because the Greek vestments are, are very thin and flexible and very often the Greek priest will pick up the philonium and place it over their shoulders if they sit down in the altar. You can't always do that with Russian vestments and the priest, um, uh, the bishop, really can't do that with uh, his sakos. So it's probably to keep from wrinkling the vestments not because there's some great sin in, in uh, if you happen to sit on part of the vestments. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a superstition that one absolutely must 
uh, lift the vestments and, and not sit on any part of them because um, that that's obviously not really possible in every case. Uh, it's just a, a custom. Uh, and it developed into some kind of a fetish, I'm sure, that became a superstition. Somebody else asked me if if I touch a cat on Sunday morning, am I forbidden to take communion? That's an interesting one. Uh, well, it, the cat can't take communion on Sunday morning if it's been touched by a human anyway. Uh, I, not, uh, I, I have heard that superstition before. I should think you'd wash your hands after you touch the cat, uh, just for general hygiene. I, anyway, but there is no impediment to taking communion if you've touched uh, an animal uh, in, in, on Sunday morning. Uh, this again is a kind of a, a local fetish of some kind that developed into a superstition uh, that became some kind of a, uh, another legalism, uh, the kind that kind of sometimes haunts the Orthodox Church and haunts the faithful. So those are, are uh, a couple of the, the um, direct superstitions that we were asked about. Uh, I think we, we responded to the one about in Moldova where you have to blow a post horn or trumpet-like device in front of a coffin as it's on its way to the, to the cemetery. Uh, so the demons don't leap into the coffin and turn the body into a vampire or some such like thing. That is almost prehistoric. It's, it has nothing to do with anything Christian. Uh, and now, of course, it's resolved itself into simply a, a local custom of some kind. Uh, when I was in Moldova, uh, uh, the, the district of Romania, Mold, Mold, Moldovia, not the Republic, um, in Moldavia, the I asked some people who were in a funeral procession after the burial had taken place and actually tried blowing this trumpet myself. And um, they weren't too sure why they did it anymore. It'd been The purpose had been pretty well forgotten. So it just became like a local custom. Um, I, I had asked a little further and found out that once upon a time people believed and some still believed that you had to blow the trumpet to scare the demons away so they didn't go into the coffin and take possession of the body. Presumably if they did, then the, the deceased person would become a vampire or something. Um, so there, there are a host of, of superstitions of that type. And we talked about the letter that fell from heaven, or at least I wrote something about it on my blog site. Um, so I'd be interested in hearing any more um, of these kind of superstitions that you wanted to ask about. Um, I know in Russia, at least before the revolution, um, a priest went to visit somebody who was sick. Sometimes he would put both feet together and hop over the threshold into the house because he was aware that the people were watching and if he put his left foot in first, it meant the sick person was going to die. And if he put his right foot in first, it meant the sick person was going to recover. Now, the priest realized that if they accidentally put their left foot over the threshold first, people would focus on the, the person dying and convince the person that he was dying. And the person might die just because he was convinced he was going to die, whereas he wouldn't have otherwise. There is a very powerful psychosomatic situation when people actually believe these things. It's the same with curses. Um, a curse can only work if you believe in curses and that you've been cursed. 
Now this uh, delusion is so powerful that people actually have died from being told that a powerful witch or wizard or medicine man or something, particularly in voodoo practice, has put a death curse on them. They actually can grow sick and die, uh, and it's really uh, a death dying from fear, because they're convinced they're going to die and nothing can stop it, so they, in fact, their heart shuts down and they die. Uh, we, we have some examples of this in, in uh, medical records, um, where uh, a doctor has found out that a sick person with no actual source of the sickness that can be discerned, eventually they find out that uh, a curse, a death curse has been placed on the person and the person believes it. And uh, there was a, a either a new scientist or the Scientific American, I forget which one, uh, the last issue of it. There was a discussion about this and a, a particular case history that was interesting. Uh, curses do not work and have no validity. If you strongly believe in curses though and believe you've been cursed, then emotionally and psychologically you can do yourself a lot of harm. And when somebody is absolutely convinced they've been cursed and they believe it, and they come and ask me about it, how to get rid of the curse, I tell them that the only way to get to overcome a curse is to forgive from your heart the person who cursed you. The very moment you forgive that person from your heart, the curse is broken and uh, it's completely powerless. That's actually true because again the curse works psychosomatically and uh, forgiving a person from the heart as a way of totally breaking a curse is the only practically Christian way I know to help a person who really deeply believes in this and is affected by it to get through it and to break the, the curse. Um, but the curses, of course, are not real. They, they have no real effect. There's no such thing as magic. Everything that operates by means of magic, put it out of our minds because it, it doesn't work, it isn't there, there's nothing to it. Another superstition that caused a great deal of um, difficulty to the degree that one bishop in Russia was actually deposed over it was the uh, barcode superstition. The idea that barcodes were the mark of the beast and if you used barcodes or uh, in any way purchased merchandise that had barcodes or had a barcode in your passport or your driving license it was the mark of the beast and you had accepted Antichrist and you were going to go to hell. Uh, of course, barcodes are somewhat old-fashioned now, being replaced by something that's genuinely sinister, that is the uh, microchip that has a huge amount of information on you and can actually be implanted in the body. Uh, so we, we see uh, that the barcode thing was really a superstition and it desensitized people. I wanted to uh, just finish what I'd started saying. I won't go into the uh, back onto the uh, Old Testament is about you until tomorrow evening. I just wanted to uh, let people know why there'd be no broadcast the past month 
while I was traveling at, at, at several conferences in uh, Europe and the Middle East. Uh, I had been talking about the barcode superstition, which actually became something of a cult, in particular in Russia, and caused a lot of strife uh, in, in many places. And it was a superstition, not very well thought out. Uh, the trouble with crying wolf every time something new comes along and saying, oh, this is the mark of the beast, this is the end of the world, this is the Battle of Armageddon, or any of these these um, things. We're used, used to hearing them more from, from Protestant, um, fundamentalist Protestants who get hysterical quite easily, and uh, everything is the sign of the times and that sort of thing. But uh, the, the trouble is that uh, crying wolf all the time about every new thing that comes along desensitizes people so that when something genuinely seriously comes serious comes along people are no longer willing to listen because they've heard you cry wolf far too many times and this really is what has happened uh, now in in the case of the, uh, the the barcode cult or the barcode superstition that Many people and church leaders are not willing to listen to the problems with the new microchips. And let's put aside the uh, eschatological for a moment. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh, the microchip is definitely the mark of the beast because it can be implanted in your earlobe or something like that. Uh, it's true, of course, it can be planted in your earlobe. Whether it's going to turn out to be the mark of the beast or not uh, isn't the whole issue. Part of the issue is that these microchips contain a huge amount of information about you. They can be read not only by those who are supposed to be reading them, but they can be read by criminals. Uh, you know, criminals can get your uh, bank card number because when they, they pass their own bank card through a bank card reader in a supermarket or another store, they put a little magnetic device onto the bottom of it, unseen by the clerk, and it picks up all the information from succeeding bank cards that are run through the, the slot on the machine. Uh, so uh, with microchips now, uh, we, we've been told that you know we, we have to have a passport when we go to America from Canada, and we've been told that if we have particular kind of driving license with a microchip implanted in it that has substantial amount of information about us, we won't need to have the passport. As we drive through the um, scanner, crossing the border, can read our microchip and uh, make a national agency check of some kind to see if we're criminals or, or anything like that, and then we can drive on across the border. Now these microchips are programmed also to be used in supermarkets and uh, in, in other applications. The criminals will always find a way to obtain a microchip reader and read these microchips off from some distance. Consequently, all the information that is placed on these microchips will be available to criminal elements, to people who want to steal your identity, and to, of course, the advertising industry and, and um, the government agencies who have no business knowing this much about you. So it's a radical violation of privacy to begin with. And also a, a way of controlling people. Having a microchip in your driving license 
can be the same thing as the old Soviet uh, communist internal passport. Only much more effective at tracking people than, than the internal passport of the communist era. So it, it poses a number of questions and dangers. Uh, it, of course, could be what the mark of the beast will consist in. Uh, it could be that, uh, you know, it'll become the only way to actually purchase things in the marketplace. We have no idea. We do not need to start a cult or a superstition about microchips in order to be very wary of them. They're dangerous things. To have that much information available to anybody with a microchip scanner and reader uh, is really a very poor idea. And I think it should be resisted. So uh, I just wanted to close with that. And again, later on, we will take up um, probably tomorrow evening. The Old Testament is about you. Um, we'll likely skip the, the books that give long list of the laws and regulations for the moment. There will be uh, opportunity to discuss Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all this a little bit later. Uh, but for, the, for now, we'll, we'll uh, finish this evening with this little discussion about superstitions. And uh, tomorrow evening, we'll take up again from the book of Joshua. The Old Testament is about you. Thank you, and uh, I'm glad to be back home and, and uh, back on YouTube broadcasting again. And um, we'll uh, hope to hear from more of you. Several of you have written whilst I was gone. There have been a number of new subscribers, and I would like to simply welcome all the new subscribers to these broadcasts. Those of you who wrote because they thought perhaps I was ill or um, something was, was wrong, that the broadcast hadn't been seen for so long, any new ones, uh, thank you very much for your prayers and for having written. And um, we should be back um, steady until September now before I'll be going anywhere else for any conferences. So uh, thank you for your new subscriber subscriptions. Welcome to the broadcast. Let us hear from you and hear what you'd like to talk about. I think we'll do 10 more on the Old Testament is about you and then we'll go on to a different um, series. So, thank you, and uh, Christ is risen, and uh, keep us in your prayers.